Welcome back, everyone. Jose Nino here with another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, Keith Preston of Attack the System joins me again to talk about the latest happenings in the political space. How are you today, Keith? I'm good. Good to be back on the program. All right. Well, let's do a brief rundown of some of like the crazier events that have taken place in this month. Well, you first had like the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, which was a quite nasty incident. Once like this train like derailed, it burned for over two days while releasing hydrogen chloride and phosgene into the air. And this incident has caused somewhat of a stir, but it seems that it's mostly been some of like the nationalist right and members of the progressive left, like the Bernie left, making noise about it. But the corporate press has been focusing on other matters, though federal officials are finally starting to visit East Palestine and try to address the matter at hand. What do you make of this incident? And do you believe it is testament to a solid trend of declining infrastructure in the U.S.? Yeah, it's uh, part of a process that's been developing for a while. As many people know, America's infrastructure is not very well maintained and it becomes increasingly worse over time. The railroads are probably among the least well-maintained infrastructure in part because they're just not considered to be an important mode of transportation. Uh, For example, not that many elite or affluent people travel by train anymore. They mostly fly. So it's not a priority for the federal government to maintain railroad infrastructure. And a lot of this was predicted a long time ago. There have been experts on mass transit who have predicted that we were going to start seeing more and more problems of this type. Not only uh, train derailments, but also things like bridges collapsing and, and things of that nature, because our infrastructure really is not very well maintained at all. And as far as the train derailment, this has been building up for a while. It just recently, there was a, a situation where there was almost a strike by railroad workers uh, because of their working conditions. And one of the problems with some of their working conditions is that they they work themselves to a frazzle where you have people that are operating the railroads that aren't operating on, on all cylinders because they're just burnt out. And again, this has been going on for a while. I know about one time, about 25 years ago, I was traveling by Amtrak. I was traveling uh, in the mid Atlantic region of the United States from Pennsylvania going South. And I remember there was a delay uh, because of a train derail, but it wasn't actually the train that I was on, but another train had derailed. And then uh, it wasn't as bad an a- of an accident as this, but another train had derailed. And then that caused my train to be backed up. So I was stuck on a train for uh, about eight hours. That was immobile, eight to 10 hours. I was just on the train that wasn't moving. So this is nothing new. This has been going on for a while, but but it does seem that the situation has started to get worse in more recent times because there have been a number of other train derailments in recent years that were fairly serious as well. And when you consider that travel by train is not a a primary mode of transportation, there's actually a fairly high percentage of of, of, per capita of train derailments when compared to other modes of transportation. So all that does reflect a declining infrastructure and the failure to maintain and update infrastructure. 
I mean, compare the United States with, say, Japan or China, where they have the bullet trains or the high-speed trains. You know, we don't have anything even remotely approaching that in the United States. Europe is the same way. In Europe, you can get on trains and go virtually anywhere at, at top speed. They don't have quite as good a, a train transportation system as, as they do in East Asia or some, some of the East Asian countries. But it's still an excellent system. It's well-maintained. Uh, it's nothing like that in the United States. Hmm. Do you know who are like the primary demographics of people that use train for their mode of transportation these days? Well, that's an interesting question. The majority of all rail travelers are between the ages of 21 and 29. So it's mostly young adults, in other words. Yeah, I think that's a big part of the issue. You know, as I said earlier, in the United States, people of means rarely travel by train. It's just not a popular mode of transportation by people with of means. So if they, they typically fly or, you know, if it's a shorter distance, they simply drive. The same is true of buses, of, of something like, say, Greyhound bus. That's not considered a priority issue either when it comes to bus transportation. It's not considered a priority issue in the United States. For the same reason, people of means simply don't use the bus. I know in the city that I live in, uh, there are constant complaints about inadequate public transportation as far as buses and that kind of thing. And, and a big reason for it is that it's mostly lower to lower middle income people that rely on the bus. So infrastructure and transportation are, are a major issue because of this, because uh, there's just it's just not a priority. There's no, not much investment in infrastructure for transportation. Well, certainly not when it comes to public transportation, because it's not a priority issue of people who have influence. I see. That uh, makes sense. Well, another big development that popped off earlier this month was the departure of Project Veritas founder and chairman James O'Keefe. He was apparently enveloped in a bitter management squabble that was filled with allegations of workplace misconduct and misuse of donor money. What's your initial impression of this situation? And do you view this as some coup that more establishment factions of the conservative movement use against O'Keefe, who has a history of occasionally going off script on a host of issues? Yeah, I think it was uh, a purge. He was purged because the organization itself was concerned he was too radical. They, they started to view him as a liability. I think they were probably concerned about something like having the IRS coming after them and losing their, uh, their tax uh, status and things of that nature. So, yeah, that's what it seems to be. I mean, I mean the, the misconduct that he's accused of is no different than what goes on in you know, all kinds of organizations for all kinds of reasons. And I think that was just something that was being used as a pretext to purge O'Keefe because see, they they view him that you know other members of the organization viewed him as too radical or or too likely to bring the authorities down on the or, or something of that nature. I think that's pretty obvious. What would you say would be like some of the projects or um, actions that O'Keefe took that likely prompted this board to pressure him out and force him out of the org? Well, he's he's being labeled a conspiracy theorist, and nowadays that's a label that's often put onto people that are being targeted by the establishment. 
you know, for various reasons, you know, it's it, like you know, anytime someone challenges the establishment, it's considered a conspiracy theory. You know, and of course, what they try to do is they try to link conspiracy theorists to things like, say, uh, you know, Holocaust deniers or the Jewish conspiracy or something of that nature, you know, implying that so-called conspiracy theories are essentially you know, Nazis. But I think that as far as the you know, activities he's been involved in, the recent issues involving the uh, alleged stolen Biden diary, I think that that may have made him a target. You know, the, the uh, alleged theft of a diary belonging to President Biden's daughter, uh, Ashley Biden. Also, the Twitter suspension, he's come under attack from the tech companies, from big tech. Uh, now, that was before Elon took it over, but that, that was back in 2001. He's also gone up against the educational establishment in various contexts. Uh, he's crossed the Washington Post. He's gone after CNN. He's gone after the Open Society. You know, he's got into conflicts with Planned Parenthood. If we have to consider there's a wide range of interests that are connected to the regime that is currently in power. You know, we have a Democratic Party administration in power. And he's offended a lot of Democratic Party interests uh, over the years. But going back for a pretty good way, he's going back probably about 15 years or so. And I think that a lot of people through him in, in, in his organization probably decided to just throw him under the bus uh, because they were concerned about him uh, bringing the heat down on them. That's what it looks like. I don't know that anything he's done lately is any more, quote unquote, radical than things that he's done in the past. It just seems like that uh, increasingly his associates were concerned about uh, repression issues. And, and that's that's not an, an, an unfounded consideration, uh, given the current political atmosphere. So we can see how they might might have been concerned about that. Uh, but that seems to be what happened. I don't know that there's anything that James O'Keefe himself did. I think they were just concerned about being thrown under the bus. But, uh, you know, particularly after the recent Alex Jones case, you know, as well as everything that's going on with the J6 defendants and all of that. That all makes sense when you think about it. So, yeah, it's a, those are some good points you raise there, Keith. Well, let's shift to more of the 2024 presidential race. Several figures have now thrown their hats into the ring for the 2024 election on one on the Republican side. On one hand, you had Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor and United States ambassador to the UN, announced her presidential run, which was then followed up by Vivek Ramaswamy, this anti-woke American entrepreneur and author who also announced his respective presidential bid. How do you see these two new Republican entrants faring in the GOP primary? Well, that's interesting because they're really coming at it from different angles. Nikki Haley is the favorite of the Republican donor class. You know, she's really their ideal in terms of the kind of candidate the donor class would want. The donor class for the Republican Party is completely at odds with the ground level, more populist leading activist base of the Republican Party. There really is a civil war going on, a top bottom civil war going on in the Republican Party. And it's clear that the donor class wants someone like Nikki Haley, who's really just a 
traditional establishment Republican, you know, in the tradition of, say, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush and, you know, going back to, I mean, she, she's not that old, but, but going back to uh, that tradition, Ramaswamy is interesting because he's more of an outsider. He doesn't have a background in actually being involved in Republican Party politics. Now, he is more of a of a conservative movement guy, but in some ways, he's kind of like Andrew Yang for the Democrats. He's someone that comes from the business world and is coming into the Democratic, you know, well, Andrew Yang came out of the business world. He came into the Democratic Party as kind of a maverick candidate. And then Ramaswamy seems to be doing that on the Republican side. And it's interesting how he's making being anti-woke uh, into his main issue. And he, he has some interesting ideas on that. Like one thing that he argues for is that the if that tech companies are going to enjoy the privilege of Section 230, then they uh, they need to abide by the First Amendment. Otherwise, they're practicing censorship you know, in a way that's unconstitutional. Uh, another thing that he says that he wants to do is that as long as anti-discrimination laws are the dominant legal paradigm, that should be extended to ex- include political affiliation as well as, say, like race, gender, and religion, and, and topics like that, uh, which are some you know interesting ideas about fighting back against the, the woke uh, cultural establishment. Because the woke phenomena really is the center now. I mean, if we look at what the ideological center is in terms of you know what dominates institution, woke is it. Uh, you know, it's it's all about the government. You know, at every level, it's certainly in the educational system, the media, entertainment, mainline religion, Wall Street, you know, Silicon Valley. Uh, it's now in the military. It's in the intelligence services. So woke is the center. So he's really taking on what amounts to the, you know, the establishment ideology, the, you know, what the Marxists call the ideological superstructure, the ruling class. Uh, and one thing that's interesting about Ramaswamy is that he understands that the capitalist elements, you know, the, the, the sectors within the business and corporate sector are the ones that really push this as, as hard as anyone uh, because it's a distraction away from socioeconomic issues. You know, the, the, it's a way for corporate organizations to market themselves as being socially aware and socially conscious and you know, engage, expressing civic virtue and things like that. In fact, in business schools now, they teach this. They actually teach how to you know, market your corporation as a socially responsible, environmentally responsible, done first, you know, whatever uh, corporation. You know, they actually have graduate level seminar courses on this in business schools. And Vivek Ramaswamy is, is running against this, and it is a somewhat maverick position. So it'll be interesting to see how far he goes with this. Yeah, I'm definitely curious to see how both fare because, yeah, I agree with your point about Nikki Haley being a full-blown neocon and like the the donor favorite. She she has the archetype being like a woman, POC and all that because the Republican Party also loves to parade its tokens. I actually do think Ramaswamy does have interesting ideas on a host of issues. So his campaign is definitely something to watch out for now the main presidential discussion that everybody on Twitter is just sounding off on is Donald Trump versus Ron DeSantis. 
it seems that the drums are beating harder for this matchup to go down, especially among certain disaffected factions of the conservative establishment. Some elements of the establishment are actually beginning to coalesce around DeSantis. Do you see DeSantis officially entering the ring? And if he does, do you believe that he has a good chance of beating Trump? Well, he has a calculation that he has to make about whether this is the right time for him to run for president. He could play it two ways. He could enter the race and challenge Trump as the leading candidate as the in the Republican Party. Or he could decide to wait until the next time, until 2028, with the hopes that by then, you know, well, well, that would, that would be Trump's second term, so he wouldn't be allowed to, to run again. So hoping he can be Trump's replacement, that he could essentially be Trump's heir. There's also the issue of uh, his gubernatorial term, if he's going to finish out his gubernatorial term, or if he's going to try to run for president while he's still governor. So, yeah, he's got a calculation to make, and I, I, I'm not sure if he's made a decision yet about w- which direction he wants to go. It, it looks like that there's a really high probability he's going to enter the contest. And it's, I think, though, that what's significant about that is there seem to be a lot of Republican Party establishment types who view DeSantis as their own counter-Trump, that is, as someone that they can use to sort of steer Trump's audience in a direction that they think is to be a more friendly to Republican establishment interests. Because if you look at DeSantis' background, you know, he's he sort of reinvented himself as a populist as governor of Florida. But if you look at his background going back further than that, he's really more neocon than than a populist. So, and I suspect that if he were to be elected president, he would revert to being a neocon. And that's, that's what the Republican Party establishment wants. I mean, they want somebody that could be another neocon uh, puppet. They want somebody who's going to be another George W. Bush or uh, someone of that nature. And I think that the Re- Republican Party elite certainly view DeSantis as someone they can work with on a greater level than, than with Trump. One of the main things they don't like about Trump is that he's just not a team player from their perspective, their vantage point. So there seems to be that a lot of people within the Republican Party that want to, I would say, groom DeSantis as the sort of a counter Trump that can deflect uh, voter interest away from Trump uh, by cultivating the same kind of populist sounding message, uh, but in a way that's going to be less directly hostile or less offensive to Republican Party establishment interests. Now, I, I really think the Republican Party leadership wants to purge Trump very badly. I mean, I think that's the main thing they want to do. And they view they viewed DeSantis. I don't I don't really think they even like DeSantis that much. I I think they really want someone like Nikki Haley or from their view better yet, Liz Cheney. But I think they look at it like, okay, this DeSantis guy, we can work with him. We can use him as the counter Trump. And then perhaps if, you know, they, they probably figure that if they can deflect voting votes away from him and the, away from Trump in the Republican primary towards DeSantis, then if then if DeSantis doesn't, uh, you know, is, is t- proved to be controversial as well, they're hoping that'll push things in the direction of a neocon candidate or neocon favorite candidate like, say, Nikki Haley or someone of that nature. 
Yeah. In what ways would a DeSantis presidency defer from like a Trump presidency, would you say? Well, I think DeSantis is much more of a neocon on foreign policy. I mean, he, ha- he hasn't really talked about foreign policy much because he's a governor of a state. Uh, and I, I think he's been politically calculating enough to just basically remain silent on, on a lot of foreign policy issues, particularly Ukraine and that kind of thing. But one thing DeSantis did in Florida, is, I remember one point he tweeted that he was going to be the most pro-Israel governor ever. I, I, to which my response would be, well, what does being pro-Israel have to do with being a governor? I mean, a governor doesn't set foreign policy. But, you know, it's so it's clear that DeSantis is really trying to work the the Israeli lobby angle and by extension, the neocon angle. Now, Trump is very pro-Israel. He certainly he, I would say he's the most pro-Israel candidate, the a president the United States ever had. But at the same time, you know, he's not really a team player. I think that a lot of the neocon establishment look at it like he's too they, they view him as too unpredictable. Uh, too much of a maverick, too much of a guy that they, you know, that, that's uh, going to go off and do his own thing. Too much of a loose cannon, and that's not what they want. I mean, they want somebody they can puppet master, and I think they're hoping DeSantis could be that person. Uh, I don't think they want him either. Like I said, I think they want really want somebody like me, Mickey Haley, or Liz Cheney. You know, they want a, they want an unabashed neocon, just so not just somebody who's say a neocon leading you know, conservative movement type. You know, which which Trump isn't any of that. I mean, he doesn't come from a neocon background. He doesn't come from a conservative movement background. You know, so they are looking at it like DeSantis is like a tool they can be used to deflect Trump. Do you see Biden running in 2024 or will he get dumped for another candidate? And who do you think would be a potential replacement for him? Well, one thing that really illustrates the sad state of the Democratic Party is that their most viable candidate in uh, 2024 is going to be a, you know, a guy in his 80s that seems to have early stages dementia or, or whatever. And he's their, he's their most viable candidate. Because if Biden decides not to run again or if the party just decides to quietly retire him, who are they going to run at his place? You know, are they going to run Hillary again? I mean, we see how that worked last time. And, you know, there's other people that are they've been that have been throwing up. Uh, I think they've tried to test market some other people. One is Gavin Newsom. I mean, this was a guy who was nearly recalled even in California. And, you know, then, then there's Pete Buttigieg. He doesn't seem to be particularly happy and I mean popular. And it, and in in recent times, Buttigieg hasn't hasn't exactly demonstrated a high level of confidence in his current job. Then there's also Kamala Harris. I mean, I, the Democratic Party establishment, that's that's who they really want. They want somebody like Harris. They want somebody like Buttigieg. But um, Harris is not popular either. She polls very low in terms of popularity. She did very poorly in the primaries when she was actually trying to run for the presidency. But you have the Democratic Party establishment, the DNC and all that. that these are the kinds of figures they want. They want to have these figures that are just standard, run-of-the-mill corporate neoliberals, but who check the diversity boxes, you know, Buttigieg being gay, uh, Harris being half black and half Indian. Uh, you know, that's, that's really what they're looking for. And the thing is, they don't really have someone like that right now that they can actually sell to the general public. So that, le- that leaves them with Biden. So, you know, it's, it's really uh, an interesting situation. I, I don't know who they would run in place of Biden. 
I think if he decides not to run, I think the uh, Democratic Party primaries next year are going to be just a total circus. Who knows who's going to enter? I know Marianne Williamson has been talking about uh, entering the race again to try to primary Biden from the left. You know, who knows? I mean, somebody like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez could could enter the contest. So it's if Biden doesn't run, I think the primaries for both parties are going to be just a total freak show next year. Yeah, definitely. It's generally a microcosm of the total freak show of like U.S. politics writ large, whether it's like domestically or abroad. And speaking of potential freak show political developments, you had Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene cause a stir earlier in the week by doubling down on her calls for a national divorce where red states would break away from blue states. How viable of a proposition is this? And do you think this will be just the first of many other calls to break up or at least realign certain political jurisdictions within the U.S.? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot more of that in the future. And uh, that kind of idea, you know, national divorce, as it's been called, is now moving its way into the mainstream discourse. It's been around for a while on the margins, but it seems now that it's uh, in the last few years, it's really started to move into mainstream discourse. And, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is unique because she's the first sitting congressperson who's actually called for this or suggested this might be a possibility, which is, the, to my knowledge, has never happened before. I don't know of anyone in Congress previously who's suggested an idea like this. So and now that it's you know, that she's sort of opened the door to this, I suspect there will be more people coming along calling for this, you know, elected officials, media uh, figures and, and things of that nature. I saw Ann Coulter on Tim Poole's show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and, and Ann Coulter for a long time was one of the top Republican pundits out there. I think she's probably written upteen books and all of her books are New York Times bestseller. I mean, she's long been, you know, for over 20 years, she's been a really popular conservative commentator. And I saw her on Tim Pool's show and she was basically saying the same thing as, as uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, yeah, she wasn't quite as aggressive about it, but she was saying, well, we need to, the red states just need to go their own way and do their own thing and, and uh, forget about the blue states. And she was actually debating it with Tim Poole because Tim Poole was saying, well, wouldn't that lead to a civil war? And, and, and she was saying, well, not really. We just need to sort ourselves out culturally. By the way, that's actually happening in the form of this thing called the big sort that a, uh, a commentator named uh, Bill Bishop has been following for probably about 15 years. And one thing Ann Coulter said, though, that was very, is interesting. She said that if she thought she thought that, that if there was a civil war, the right would lose. And I, I suspect she's probably right, because my estimation is that the, the woke side of the culture war seems to be deeply entrenched in most institutions now. You know, I don't see, say, the military or whatever uh, going out to uh, to side with, say, to side with anti-woke protesters or something like that. So when commentators talk about national divorce, there's different levels of that. I mean, there are there are some people who say, well, we need to literally split up the United States into multiple countries, uh, just like, say, the former Soviet Union split up into multiple countries. 
There are other people who don't quite take it that far. They say, well, we just need more federalism or decentralize and have more states' rights and more local sovereignty and, you know, either formally or informally, meaning that some localities or whatever would just ignore federal law or federal policy or not participate in federal programs or or things of that nature. So, um, there's a lot of different levels of this, but I do think that there will be more calls for that in the future because I don't really see the conflict that we see today going away. If anything, it's going to get worse. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I don't really see the American Constitutional Republic, especially in its nominal model, existing in its current form for a very long time. I would not be shocked if by like the end of this century, it goes through some profound changes. I, I think that's quite likely. Yeah. Whenever this idea is raised, one uh, objection that is re- immediately uh, offered is, well, the cultural divide that we see in the United States is not merely a state-by-state divide. It's not like the Civil War in the, in the 1860s where you had the South versus the North. It's more, uh, yeah, like most states are a mixture of red and blue and purple and all of that. Uh, it's more urban versus rural, and it's more small towns versus large cities, and it's you know it's uh, and you know you have pockets of blue and red states, and and vice versa. And I tend to agree with that. I don't think that you you would have a state by state secession. I think instead you would have a situation where clusters of localities in different states join other states, like they leave one state and join another. Like I could see. East Oregon or East Washington state leaving and joining Idaho or something like that. Or, you know, I could see something like Austin, Texas becoming an independent city state like Washington, D.C. Or, you know, I could see uh, the large cities becoming independent from the actual states they're in, like New York would be a, a separate state from New York state. I could see that happening. And of course, on a macro level, there's the question of, well, will the United States itself survive or will that split up into multiple countries and that could go in any number of directions we see a lot of countries and a lot of societies that if existed in the past in all kinds of ways that would seem odd by our standards but are somewhat relevant to this current situation for example ancient greece was just a collection of cities it was about 1100 cities with no overarching government you know, and then you had uh, the Holy Roman Empire. That was a confederation. Uh, you know, ostensibly, you had an emperor, but it was really just a confederation of a few hundred local principalities. Then you had something like, say, Ottoman Turkey, that the, the Ottoman Turks that had uh, an overarching imperium that was ostensibly under Sharia law. But then they had a different governmental system for all the different religions that were recognized as what the Muslims call the people of the book. That is religions that are not Islamic, but are considered predecessors to Islam or cousins to Islam, like Christianity, Judaism, and Zoroastrianism, and some of those. You know, and in Shogunate Japan for a while, you actually had a system that could be called polycentric centralism, where you had several governments that were actually central governments, but then they all claimed different houses, like you know, the equivalent of different feudal manners, I guess, if you want to make an analogy to medieval Europe, it was sort of like that. But so you had all these different uh, different houses that were connected to different uh, shogunates that were in turn sort of a triumvirate uh, of governmental systems that were, you know, something like a, 
that were very polycentric, which, you know, that's way out, out, way beyond what we're accustomed to in an institutional setting. So given the way that we have so much conflict in American society today, and given the way that the fragmentation is so rooted in this kind of patchwork map, you know, it's not clearly state by state or region by region. It's precinct by precinct and neighborhood by neighborhood and district by district. I could see some sort of system like that developing eventually. Yep, definitely. That's something that's not out of the question, especially with all the socioeconomic and even geopolitical tumult that's going to be taking place throughout this century. So, yeah, speaking of like geopolitical shifts, let's talk about the uh, Russo-Ukrainian conflict. I'm starting to get the impression that with Russia making these very slow gains in eastern Ukraine, this appears to be a drawn-out affair that will likely take many years to settle What's your general impression of how the conflict is going thus far? Yeah, I think that this is essentially Russia's Iraq war or maybe even Russia's Vietnam war. I think this is going to go on for quite some time, as you said. I think it's probably going to last years, if not decades. Russia's probably going to be in Ukraine fighting for a long, long time to come. I don't really see Russia retreating anytime soon. And... I suppose that could happen if the other world powers got together and, and you know, offer to broker uh, some kind of settlement between, say, Russia and Ukraine or right, really Russia and the West more broadly. I don't see them doing that. I don't see that happening. And I don't I don't see Russia backing down either. So my guess is that Russia will probably be in Ukraine for quite some time. And Ukraine is more or less going to be the new Berlin Wall. I mean, it's kind of like the uh, reestablishing the Cold War all over again, only the, this time around the, law, the line is going to be drawn in Ukraine rather than in Germany. But it's essentially the same kind of situation, an armed peace you know, between two uh, sets of expansionist forces. And it's, you know, and it's sort of a, and you've got a you know, sort of a dividing line right down through the middle of a country that that seems to be the most likely outcome. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about that because it almost kind of sounds like a North Korea, South Korea analog as well. Do you see some parallels with the situation in North and South Korea? With yeah, yeah. In Ukraine? yeah, I think it's very likely we're going to have a situation like that in Ukraine. You're going to have a boundary somewhere in the middle of Ukraine. You're going to have one side of Ukraine that's under Russian control. You're going to have another side that's aligned with the West and it's going to be very similar to North and South Korea. It's going to be very similar to East and West Germany during the Cold War. You know, an armed peace between two groups that are essentially at war with each other, you know, whether it's a Cold War. You know, I mean, the, the, the Korean War never ended. It's really just in, a, in the state of an armistice now and has been for, what, 70 years or something. And I, I could very easily see Ukraine turning out the same way. I don't, yes, I don't, I don't see any settlement to the issues there. I mean... Whatever side you take, like the you know, Russia's position is that, well, the NATO should not have kept expanding right up to Russia's border. It, you know, they were promised by George H.W. Bush and Brent Scowcroft and some other American foreign policy luminaries from the Cold War, at late Cold War period. Uh, they were, you know, Russia was promised that 
NATO was not going to be expanded into the former uh, Warsaw Pact countries. And of course, that happened. You know, Bill Clinton and then George W. Bush and also Barack Obama were all big on that. They were all big on NATO expansion. And then eventually NATO expanded to where you had multiple NATO states right on Russia's border, like uh, the, the Baltic states. And Russia was concerned about Ukraine joining NATO or, or joining the EU because uh, the EU has a mutual defense compact among its members. And, and about two-thirds of EU members are NATO members. So if you're in the EU, you're, by extension, under the NATO umbrella just by default. So I think Russia viewed that as an unacceptable security threat because traditional Russian foreign policy is to maintain as wide a buffer zone around Russia as possible because Russia has no natural defenses. And so, I mean, Putin's foreign policy is a traditional Russian foreign policy. And now the other side of it is that other people say, well, Russia has always been an expansionist power of its own. You know, you had the old Russian empire. They try to exercise uh, domination over the nations of the Caucasus, of Central Asia, and, and all of this. And within that framework, I don't really see, you know, any kind of genuine peace settlement coming out of that. Yeah, I don't. I don't see Russia just packing up and leaving Ukraine and saying, well, okay, if Ukraine you know, joins NATO or the United States or England put nukes in, in Ukraine, we're just not going to worry about it. That's obviously not going to happen. Uh, at the same time, the West, particularly the Americans and the British, and also the, the, you know, the, the, some of the Slavic and Baltic countries are very hawkishly anti-Russian as well, given their history. So they don't really want to you know, cede an inch of territory to the Russians. So I think what's going to happen, yeah, is something like North and South Korea or like East and West Germany, you know, they're they're going to you know create a no man's land throughout central Ukraine or something of that type, and it's just going to be an armed peace between the two sides as for as long as it can be maintained. That's how I th- believe things will break down there. However, there's one point that is interesting to me right now that could have even broader geopolitical implications. What do you make of the rumors of China potentially supplying military aid to Russia? Well, I could see that happening if Russia looks like they're going to get beat in Ukraine. I think that China wants Russia to be able to hold the line because the Chinese essentially are in the same position as the Russians when it comes to their relationship to the West. They're in a stronger economic position, but they also see the West, particularly the United States, as being globalist and and practicing a type of international expansionism. Uh, and of course, if you look at a map of Asia where military American military bases are are located, if you look at this um, quadrilineal alliance, the Quad, they call it, that the Americans are putting together in Eastern and Southern Asia, China sees that as a security threat. And of course, China being a rising economic power, a rising technological and military power, obviously they want to increase their own realm of influence as well. So it's a similar situation in the Pacific and in East Asia to Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, you know, China has a, the same view of the West and of the United States specifically as the Russians do. They view the Americans as trying to intrude into what they rightfully see, what they think is rightfully their own sphere of influence. 
So I suspect that there could quite easily be another, you know, Cold War in the East. Uh, I think that, you know, I mean, obviously the United States is not going to just uh, allow Russia to, I mean, allow China to gain influence, say, over Taiwan, over Japan, over South Korea, or over Singapore, other American allies or quasi-allies in, in the Pacific Rim. So most likely, you know, we could see a situation where there's a, a type of Cold War that goes on where, say, the first island chain, what the Chinese call the first island chain, which is really just the island countries in East Asia, in the Pacific, like Taiwan, like Singapore, like Japan, you know, where, where that's essentially the new Berlin Wall of the East. Also, I was reading recently about how the Philippines now and the United States are starting to engage in uh, closer collaboration against China. And the Chinese are widely disliked in East Asia. If you, any, anybody you talk to from, say, the Philippines, from Japan, Korea, Malaysia, Indonesia, any of those places, they, they typically don't like the Chinese very much, you know, for a range of reasons. But, uh, but it does seem that as China is becoming larger and more uh, powerful economically, uh, developing a better military, becoming a lot more technologically sophisticated, a lot of China's neighbors seem to be more fearful of China. Of course, the Americans don't want China as a geopolitical rival. So it seems like some of the same problems are playing out in, in East Asia as well as in Eastern Europe. Yeah, all pretty interesting stuff here. Now, if China does end up supplying military aid to Russia, would you say that the Chimerica project of U.S. and Chinese elites trying to integrate both economies as much as possible is, for all intents and purposes, over? Well, not really because it's certainly possible to do multiple things at once. It's possible for the Chinese to be backing the Russians against the Americans uh, in Eastern Europe and Ukraine, and at the same time, just see wider integration, say, between the business classes in China and the business classes in America. Uh, you know, that these kinds of odd alliances go on all the time. Uh, right now, a good example is what's happening with India. Uh, on one hand, India is essentially part of the Eastern Alliance uh, against the Western sanctions that have been imposed on Russia over Ukraine. For example, what will happen is that uh, India will buy uh, petroleum from Russia and then they'll turn around and sell it in the West, even though there's a supposedly a Western uh, boycott on Russian petroleum. At the same time, India is also part of this quadrilineal alliance, the quad that is being put together uh, as a as an anti-Chinese alliance in South Asia and Southern and Eastern Asia and the Pacific. So China, I mean, India is really sort of working both ends against the middle. And Saudi Arabia is doing the same thing. I mean, Saudi Arabia, on one hand, is a guaranteed export market for American arms manufacturers that's largely underwritten by American taxpayers. You know, obviously, a lot of American petroleum companies have uh, investments and holdings in Saudi Arabia. And yet Saudi Arabia is also uh, declining to join the sanctions against Russia over Ukraine. I mean, even Israel is taking a position like that. So, you know, different countries uh, do this all the time. They'll they'll side with one country on one issue and then with their 
that country's rival on another issue. So I, I don't know that the two are contradictory. I mean, I could see China supporting Russia and Ukraine on one hand, and then continuing this kind of increasingly uh, symbiotic relationship between the business classes and the two countries when it comes to America and China. Well, yeah, that that point is pretty fascinating. But you have like some people on the other hand, like Peter Zihan, who argue that we're going through a significant phase of deglobalization right now. And that's the what I was trying to get at. Like if such a move by China would probably accelerate that because if it's true that we are going through deglobalization or elites are just trying to go through that, I'd imagine that like an injection of military aid by China into Russia would not only break, cause that to be like the final straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the Chimerica relation is concerned, but also it would clearly delineate like the Eurasian axis versus like the Western axis in terms of like geopolitics and geoeconomic competition. Yeah, uh, just today I, I saw an article, I think it was in Business Insider or some some magazine like that, where they were talking about how the G7 might be taking some action, action against uh, Russia over Ukraine. Uh, it's true that globalization has taken a hit lately. The, uh, first, uh, there was a pandemic and everything associated with that. And then there's the Russian invasion of Ukraine and then the uh, sanctions been imposed on Russia as a result. And of course, that that has created this east-west fault line that's almost like the Cold War all over again. And maintaining globalization within that framework, I think, is going to be difficult. You know, we're not going to see globalization on the level we had it, say, in the 1990s and then the 2000s. So it could be that there's going to be a, a retreat of globalization as to whether it's going to be quite on the level that Peter Zion predicts. Because Peter Zion goes so far as to say China's going to collapse. He thinks that they have a, a, a demographic imbalance and a, a level of political instability that's going to cause them to collapse eventually. Uh, he thinks Russia's on its way out as well. You know, Russia is a dying petrostate in his view. You know, I think that remains to be seen. But if those two countries were to, Russia and China, were to start actually imploding, yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I don't know that that would be a blow against globalization per se, because that would put the, the West back in the position it had at the end of the Cold War. So I think that would be more beneficial to the West, and which and by extension to, to globalization. But I, what seems to be happening, though, and not as many commentators are, are talking about this, but it seems like that, that while at the present time we are moving away from, say, unipolarity, where for a while we had this American unilateral dominance, we're moving away from that towards, I guess, what could be called a tripolarity, which is the you know, the, the United States and, and Russia and China is sort of tripolar powers. And that seems to be a transitional phase towards something that's probably more likely to happen in the future, which is multipolarity or even super multipolarity, where you have a lot of different uh, countries that have their own spheres of influence within their own uh, realm of activity. For example, in, in addition to Russia and China and America, you have uh, the European Union, uh, which is now large and economically powerful and technologically powerful, and is becoming somewhat more 
uh, of a distinctive political en- entity in response to the uh, Ukraine war. You know, also you have Turkey, uh, you have Iran, you have Saudi Arabia, India. Um, you have the rapid development that's taking place in the Southeast Asian countries. So we do seem to be moving towards a more uh, multipolar or multi-multipolar world that I think in many ways is similar to the world as it was, say, in the late 19th century. You know, the world of the 19th century, you had the British Empire that was the largest player worldwide, but it wasn't the only player. Each of the major European powers had their own colonial systems, for example. You, know, you had the, in addition to the British Empire, you had the, the Spanish and the Dutch and the French and the Belgian and the Italian and Russian and German. And, you know, all of the European states had their own empires uh, in what today is called the Global South. And then you had Japan as a rising power in the East. And while the players are somewhat different today, it's also a very similar situation in that you really, really, we could say China is becoming the new Japan and Russia is reclaiming the position it had during the era of the Tsarist Empire. And Europe is assertive again. And then we have some of these other regions in the, in Asia or in the global South that are starting to become uh, more independent. You know, we see, for example, a lot of Latin American countries going their own way, doing their own thing. So we seem to be moving towards this kind of multipolar or multi-multipolar world. And the impact that that will have on globalization is interesting. Now, if we don't have a, a singular global hegemon or even a, a collection of hegemons like a bipolar or tripolar world, but multiple states that have large regional, large-scale regional influence, I do think that that would undermine globalization quite a bit because I think all these different regional powers are going to have their own interests and it's going to be difficult to have the kind of harmony of interest that you find in order to make globalization work. All fascinating stuff and we should definitely keep tabs on whatever trends emerge in the next decade or so because the geopolitical waves look to be quite turbulent to say the least. Let's just wind things down a bit. And Keith, thank you so much for coming on again. You've been on the show several times already, but feel free to plug away your content for new listeners to the show to follow. Uh, yeah, well, I uh, have a website that where I'm the main editor. It's uh, attackthesystem.com, just like it sounds, attackthesystem.com. And from there, you can also find links to the various social media pages that I have, or you can find copies of my books and and things like that. So that's really the place to go, attackthesystem.com. All right, Keith Preston, everyone. And to my listeners, thank you again for tuning in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.